Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us. Coming up on the program, we are taking a look at Canada's self-defense laws. A recent case out of Ontario has raised a few questions about that. But we are starting the show today talking about the property assessments. They will be arriving in the mail to many, many households in BC. I know a lot of people have probably spent some time today punching in their neighbor's address to see how much their home is worth. Well, joining us to talk about the assessments is Brian Morrow, BC Assessment Assessor. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, can you tell us a little bit, before we get into the numbers and kind of looking at what we're looking at for assessments this year, can you give us a bit of a, a refresher course on how these numbers are, uh, what goes what goes into coming up with the numbers? Yeah, really, it's, uh, it's property sales. Uh, so BC assessment, uh, you know, we're working with the July 1st, 2022 valuation date for the 2023 assessments. And what we get is, you know, we get a we get an automatic feed from the Land Title and Survey Authority of every property transaction that takes place in the province. And what that gives us is uh, it just gives us a lot of market sales to analyze so that we can do our, you know, our best interpretation of what the market value of every property in BC was worth, you know, at July 1st. So, and that's an important date, isn't it? That these are the assessments as of July 1st. So not necessarily exactly what things are looking like today. That's right. Yeah, July 1st, 2022, which, um, you know, we know the market peaked in about March or April of last year. And, you know, we know that today in January 2023, that it's, uh, it's lower. It's lower than it was at July 1st. It's uh, still looking at the numbers, though, a lot of plus signs when looking at whether the single family home changes, the strata home changes, a lot of plus signs. So does anything stick out to you as far as where we're seeing those increased values? Uh, not so much. And I think the main reason for that is that this is really a continuation of what happened last year. If we think back to last year, we had those uh, much bigger increases, um, but that continued. So past July 1st, 2021. Um, things kept going up, and we know that it peaked last uh, last spring, but it had, had already gone up quite a bit before that. So, um, you know, when I see the increases on here, everything is relatively consistent. You know, we see that the highest priced um, properties, you know, things like the west side of Vancouver, the North Shore, didn't change quite as much. Um, what we also saw is that downtown Vancouver condos um, didn't actually go up that much either. I think they went up uh, less than 5%. So those are a couple of the trends that uh, you know are, are a bit uh, atypical, but almost everything else is um, pretty consistent. Interesting, those numbers too, when you're talking about condos or townhomes, uh, looking at that, the, the smaller numbers, the single-digit numbers in, say, the city of Vancouver or, or the district of West Vancouver, but a much different story if we're looking at Abbotsford, Langley, where those ones appear to be up 20%, 21%. Yeah, that's right. Uh, some of the biggest increases that we're seeing for residential properties in the lower mainland, uh, you know, they are. They're those strata properties as you get farther east out into the Fraser Valley. Um, what they also are is, you know, they are some of the, you know, the lowest price product um, left in the lower mainland. So, you know, that was what we saw, you know, kind of going up at the, the tail end there, um, kind of left as most affordable. Also, what you see is a little, a little bit of a cascading effect sometimes. So as people sold, you know, maybe detached homes in Vancouver, Burnaby, Richmond, etc., um, you see some people, they might cash out half of what they sold their house for and, you know, use the other half to buy, uh, you know, downsize and buy a condo, something smaller, something farther east. Um, so that, that's a quite common trend that we see where you see the detached homes go up first and then you see the strata product follow in the coming months to, uh, you know, maybe a year after that. 
And as well, looking at the detached homes, single family homes, it looks like a similar story in that when we're looking at places like Pitt Meadows or Langley or even going out to the District of Hope, we're seeing those 14 and 15 percent increases. Whereas, again, thing, places like West Vancouver or Vancouver, 4 percent, 7 percent. So it seems like it's, it's a similar story with the single detached homes as well. Yeah, that's right. Uh, once again, it's a continuation of last year. You know, we saw the same trend last year where the, the farther west, more expensive stuff um, either didn't go up quite as much. And that continued on for this year as well. So, you know, if you, it's hard to analyze the factors for that, but I'm sure price point plays a, uh, you know, plays a role to some degree that um, the product farther east, it was more affordable at the time. Um, you know, but what we also have seen is we've seen a trend over the past, you know, couple of years of, uh, you know, people moving, moving out of the city. So, you know, what you see for those Fraser Valley trends are actually quite similar to what you see almost everywhere else in the province. So the Fraser Valley is actually more typical for what you see everywhere else in the province. And really, it's, it's, uh, it's greater Vancouver and, you know, Vancouver proper in particular that are more of the, you know, the, the anomaly, I suppose, compared to the rest of the provincial market. And people will see their assessments and whether they're looking at their own homes or I know a lot of people like to look at the neighbours or other family members or friends and, and they'll see as well, uh, not a huge surprise, that it's the land where the bulk of the value is held or that's where the assessed value is really coming forward. Is it a true reflection of the value of, of what we're talking about or, or can that be skewed by, say, a few bidding wars where something sells for, for much over even what what the asking price was. Uh, not so much. I mean, we have so much data, you know, like I mentioned earlier about, you know, the, the feed from the Land Title and Survey Authority. Uh, we have so much sales data that it's hard to get anything skewed because you just kind of get that law of large numbers where you have so much sales data um, that you're, you're always going to get, you know, a pretty accurate picture of, you know, what, what the true market value is. Um, to get it skewed, I mean, you there's more potential for that in smaller markets where there's less data available. But when we get into the lower mainland in particular, um, you just have so much information available that um, it, it would take a lot of, uh, I don't know, misinformed data, I suppose, or, or bidding wars to skew that. Um, and bidding wars at a point in time, I mean, that was the norm for the market. So, you know, all, most sales that occurred, you know, sold over asking for, for a long period of time. Um, a lot of those involved bidding wars. And if that becomes the norm, that just is the market. So it's not so much about whether that inflated it or not. It's, it's that's what it took to actually achieve, you know, what the real market value of the property was. Now right. that changes, of course, over time. And, you know, if, if uh, interest rate trends continue as they are bidding wars, um, you probably won't see as much of those for a little while anyways. That makes uh, makes sense. What can people do? And every year I know we, we talk about this, but if somebody thinks that it just doesn't make sense or they think there's an issue with how their property was assessed, what that number is today, what can they do? Oh, yeah. Uh, I would say I've got three main steps for that. Step one, um, go to our website. Our website has so much information on it. You can see sales of properties that sold uh, that are similar to yours that sold, you know, somewhere around July of last year. That can give you a good understanding of, where, you know, how accurate your value is. Uh, you mentioned before about people taking a look at their, their neighbor's assessments. And, you know, taking a look at the assessments of similar properties helps you understand whether your assessment is fair or not. We want it not just to be accurate, but to be fair as well. 
Um, step two, I would say, is if you're still dissatisfied after seeing all the information on our website, um, is to contact us. You know, either email us or call us at one eight six six value BC. Um, talk to one of our appraisers. Um, you know, have a conversation about your property, about the market, and you'll know, see if you can come to uh, some meeting of the minds there. Um, if all that fails, uh, step three uh, is a, is an appeal, right? And the appeal deadline for this year is January thirty first. We have instructions on our website on how to do that. And there's also some very clear instructions on your assessment notice on how to do that as well. And, um, you know, it starts with a uh, there's a, a free appeal process that goes in between um, what would it be February to mid-March. Um, and then I think further to that, there's a kind of a higher level of appeal that has an April 30th deadline. Um, but we shouldn't jump into details on that, really. It starts with this January 31st appeal deadline. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. Could it be something even if somebody did a pretty extensive renovation and that wasn't reflected in the home because it didn't sell? Or could could that be something that might might make the, the assessment or, or it might seem that it doesn't match? Yeah, that, that can happen. Um, when when renovations are done through proper permits through the uh, you know the municipality, you know we get that information that from as a feed as well from the municipalities, and we're able to actually you know go take a look, um, you know try to assess the impact of the renovations on the assessment. But you know as we know, not everybody takes out proper permits for their renovations. So if there's no permits taken out, um, you know sometimes we're not aware of that, and that's something that uh, you know can be passed along to us, and then it can be taken into consideration uh, you know for assessments in the future. All right. So uh, the key message there for people, if you have questions or you need to learn more, you want to learn more about something, go to the website to get the information. And then, uh, as you mentioned, those steps are there if somebody does need to take further action. Yeah, that's right. All right. Brian Morau, I know it's been a very busy day for you today, but thank you so much for making the time for us. Yeah, not a problem. Thanks for having me, Jill. Take care. Thanks for being with us today. Well, about eight years ago, the criminal code in this country was amended, and that was to clarify the rules, the laws that deal with self-defense. But there is a new case out of the East where there is a story that sheds some more light on perhaps the need for more clarification, and it has to do with a fatal stabbing at a house in Halifax. Well, joining us to talk a bit more about this and the questions that have been raised by this case is Edward Berlew, an Ontario-based lawyer, one who specializes in firearms-related cases. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, I'm glad to be here. Um, I do represent uh, people who use firearms and knives and clubs in self-defense, and uh, and so maybe I can help out. What do you want to know? Uh, I think you can absolutely, and I, I did see you quoted in another in a newspaper story about this as well. So. Just to give a bit of background about this case, this was a case, again, that happened inside a house and neighbours heard screaming, neighbours heard that something was going on. But we've heard now from police in Halifax that there are not charges being considered because one of the, the deceased, a deceased man, was apparently one of two who were uh, attempting a home invasion. Is that your take on kind of what happened there? Yeah, but I think I, I, what I heard, and I don't have confirmation, is that the invaders had weapons, perhaps knives as well. So we don't know whose knife was used, but the what the surviving perpetrator is facing a uh, a weapons charge for having a knife during the commission of a home invasion. What does this case say to us, though, about self-defense? And, and what 
what does the law say if you are at home, like in this scenario, the the victim was, you're at home, uh, there is a home invasion or an attempted home invasion. What rights do you have? Well, first of all, you have the right to defend yourself. That's a basic human right. The, the criminal code, Section 34, is more clear about that than it had been in the past. In other words, you don't have to run. You, you, you can say, look, uh, if you're going to attack me, uh, I can defend myself. And, and, and that's what you're able to do. And you can use reasonable force. And the problem becomes this. When an amateur, unprofessional, not trained, not, not Canadian Armed Forces, not police, faces this type of a danger, they don't weigh things out. They just react. And then the police and the courts and the Crown attorneys all get involved and try to say, oh, did you do it right? Well, that's a, that's a very difficult thing to do. They have this list of A through H criteria to look at. But really, what is what are you trying to do? Did you accomplish it? Did you stop the in, did you stop the violence towards yourself or towards a family member? That's what you have to think about. And and was it reasonable in the circumstance? That's really hard to say because so much depends on how close they are, how they're armed, do they back off? You know, if you brandish something like you hold up hold up a a, a a bat to say, look, you get close to me, I'm going to hit you. That's brandishing. Will they, do they come anyway? What goes on? We don't know. Right. And that's all that has to be weighed. Sorry. It, it, that's why I say it's a difficult thing and it's imprecise. Because even when you use the phrase reasonable force, that everybody has the right to use reasonable force to defend themselves, that's also, just from listening to you describe that, it also seems like that could be, there there could be so many questions about that. Like you said, if you don't know if somebody's armed and they've broken into your house, does that change what's considered reasonable force and how you respond? Well, yeah, that's right. Like right now, there's there's a case that's going back to trial in Hamilton. And uh, uh, the guy went through. Well, what happened was there was a home, and uh, there was uh, there was a, a car being stolen. It was in the guy's garage, and he's Canadian Armed Forces, former former Canadian Armed Forces. He goes out holding this, his shotgun and meets this this person who's breaking into his truck. And the guy holds up his hands. The the homeowner. Uh, the truck owner says it's a pickup truck thinks that's a gun and he shoots him with a shotgun and the guy dies the perpetrator dies so the owner gets charged with murder and he gets acquitted but then it's going back to trial because they said well they didn't charge the jury correctly the man's going through a hell of an ordeal that's a person who is trained in the use of force and even he, in the circumstances now, is being called out by the Crown and the police in the Hamilton area. It, it, that's why I say that so much of this is, it depends on the emotions of the police and the Crown. Some just don't want you to use any weapon. They want you to run. But that's not the law, you see. And, mm-hmm. and, that, and so you have to weigh it out. 
reasonable force is also interpreted this way, even in places such as Texas, which has a stand your, a stand your ground law. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, there was an educated man. His, he was subject to a home invasion, and he shot the perpetrator who came in armed to his house. He shot him, and the guy went down. But then the house owner went up and pumped a whole bunch more, of, you know, more nine millimeters into him and killed him. That was murder because the, the jury said, you shot him, he went down, you should have called the ambulance, stopped. That was reasonable force. But you went beyond it because you went then and deliberately killed the person. See, So mm-hmm. all these things come into play. We, we even got that on that the streetcar issue in Toronto whereby that uh, young man was, was, was killed, you see. And, you know, so how was that to be handled? How was that? You know, there was one shot, then there were multiple shots. Uh, like, when is enough? When do you stop? It's hard to say. In the heat of the moment, what do you do? Many people want to continue until the threat cannot raise itself again. Is that reasonable in the circumstance? These are all value judgments, and they're all assessed after the fact. Very and difficult to do. In this latest case, which again took place uh, in, in Halifax, and this was a stabbing where uh, the the one of the victims or one of the men alleged to be involved in this home invasion was stabbed to death. Uh, does it, are they, the cases treated differently, do you think, or looking at some of these cases, is the definition questioned or are they treated differently depending on the weapon, say a knife versus a firearm? Oh, yes. Knife, club, uh, shoe. I've had people defend themselves with shoes. Um, and, and, or a gun. Yes, definitely they're looked at differently. You know, and, 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 and that's, that becomes a focus issue. Because it's almost like, what is flavor of the month? Uh, like, in other words, oh, well, we're, we're going to be getting tough on gun crime. So if you use a gun... To, to defend yourself, we're going to get tougher on you than another weapon. But here, where there was a stabbing, well, that's close contact. Okay, that's 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 arm, that's face to face, arm to arm, body to body. You know, that's the only way you can stab. So th- there was a really direct physical con- confrontation. Whereas with a gun, it could be, you know, ten feet away, twenty feet away. But there's also in police training, and it's on the internet if people wish to look it up, a thing called the wheel of force. And that says that, you know, if, some, if, if, if a person is assailing you in one way, then you respond in that way. And if they don't back off and they accelerate it up, then you can go up to the next step, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's how the police are trained to respond. First, they start verbally then they go to uh, uh, physical, then they go to a baton, then they go to a taser, then they go to a gun. But sometimes there's not even that time to figure that out. And that's because of the rush of what's going on, the rush of the violence that they're in. And, and all you can do is react. 
Do you think that this latest case then, even though the the criminal code was amended eight years ago to get better clarification when it comes to self-defense, do cases like this point to a need that, that we need further clarification? No, I think that this case is, is done the right way. I think this is an example of how the law works in a positive way. Here's, a, you know, a homeowner <clears throat> inside their house. Two perpetrators come in. They're armed. And there's a response. The response, well, if, if you're coming in, going to threatening a person with a weapon, whether it's a knife, a hammer, a screwdriver, a gun, all those things can lead to death. You're now putting yourself into that type of a confrontation. And therefore, you're putting yourself at risk when you start that kind of a confrontation or fight. And, well, now you got it. You, you, the, the outcome was not in your favor, but that's the, the type of fight you engaged in. And, 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 and the law recognized that. Where I, where I see the problem being is that people cannot go through and in fact, they're not even reading. They don't know where to go and read this on these factors in Section 34, subsection 2, right there. People zone out. Hmm. Third, section 34, subsection 2, sub, subsections A through H. Wow. That's hard to figure out. How do you weigh all that at the time? You know, is there education going on? People just react. There's no education about what you can and can't do. There's only confusion. But if you read the act, it does say that the way that the homeowner acted in Nova Scotia was within the law. All right. Well, it is a very interesting case and raises some interesting questions. Edward, we'll leave it there for today, but I appreciate you taking the time to chat today. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Glad to talk with you. Well, Canada is on track to accept more immigrants this year in 2023, more than it did in 2022. In fact, it's on track for a record-breaking year. And this is a story that Richard Zussman is following today and is going to be uh, talking more about on the News Hour at 6. But he is joining us now to talk a little bit more about these numbers. Richard, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. It seems like just yesterday we were talking about the year that was, and <laughs> here we are now looking ahead. But break down some of the numbers, if you can, and what you're looking at as far as the immigration numbers. Yeah, so the big number we're obviously worried about here in British Columbia is how many have come to this province and what sort of supports are on the table to ensure that they can thrive in British Columbia. So we know that there are 430,000 new permanent residents in 2022 that have arrived in Canada. We don't have those numbers broken down by province, but we know that BC is a popular destination for people seeking permanent residency here in Canada. So BC makes up about 11 or 12% of the Canadian population, and the permanent residency number is higher than that. Estimates between about 15 and 20%. I'm hoping by the end of the day, I can get those solid numbers from the federal government. And because of that, uh, there's a lack of um, parity in terms of the support that is needed. So that means money from the federal government to the province to cover things like 
housing and health care, schools, roads. And so it's going to be really important to understand whether Ottawa is willing to engage in a conversation with the province here about how those supports can be in place. And we've heard that from the province. We've heard that from those supporting immigrants on the front lines, especially those who are the toughest situations coming from places like Ukraine or Afghanistan, that there needs to be a more consolidated effort, a greater plan, both federally and provincially, to provide those supports for those living here now. And Richard, do the numbers break down by category as well? You mentioned people who are coming from, say, Ukraine and, and fleeing yeah. the Russian invasion in Ukraine. Does it break down, though, people who are who are coming to Canada, who are, are choosing to move to Canada, uh, and not because they're, they're leaving a bad situation or coming as a certain type of immigrant rather than, say, a refugee? Yeah, so not in the details that were provided today, but that will be part of the granular data that the federal government will provide to the provinces as they, as they work through this. The thing that is not counted here, Jill, which all experts I've spoken to point to, is temporary workers as well. So there are about another 500,000 plus temporary foreign workers living in Canada. They require these same sort of supports in terms of uh, having uh, access to health care, access to housing, and they are not um, acknowledged in this uh, evaluation. And we know that the targets from Ottawa continue to go up and up. And I think everybody's applauding that Canada is welcoming more refugees. We have a birth rate that is declining. We have lots of open jobs. We have opportunities here. But it's about matching all of those things so we don't put pressure on systems that already have significant pressure. And, and it comes back to those big two that I mentioned, healthcare and housing. We know there is insane pressure on both of those things in our province, and we are in essence at a breaking point. So yes, eventually we will get that data, Jill, that, that you mentioned in terms of trained workers, where they can work, what sort of work they can do. We know there's a huge demand for trade work and it's about matching those. And that's why Chris Friesen, who you know is one of the main providers here from ISS of BC, is saying that the provincial government needs to have a 10-year immigration plan and then bring that to Ottawa and say, These, this is what we need. This is our plan. This is how we're going to prepare for it. And this is the support we need from you to make it happen. Right, because even if you look at some of the numbers or some of the information that was released earlier today from the federal government, I mean, it paints or attempts to paint a very rosy picture saying that these are important improvements to the immigration system in Canada that will position the country well. Uh, it says that Canada is focusing on the acute labor market shortages yeah. and that this will help build a strong economy, which may all be true. But like you said, we're not seeing the numbers as far as the strain on hospitals, the continued strain on, on housing. Will there be housing uh, for uh, schools and that, that kind of thing? That that doesn't seem to be in there anywhere. Yeah, and, and what we don't know, in essence, is where exactly are these people going? Not just by province, but by city. We know that demand is higher to live in places like Vancouver and Surrey. Those are the places where um, everybody wants to live. We're seeing migration from other parts of the country into British Columbia, and all of that puts on pressure. The Canadian government, in essence, can't tell a refugee, okay, you can come into Canada, but you have to live in Fort Nelson, or you have to live in Campbell River, where we have less pressure 
on our housing stock or move to a community like uh, Fort St. John where a new hospital is being built. Oh, we know we have greater capacity for our healthcare system, so move there. That's not how it works. And so understanding the way that the system works, that there is freedom to live where you'd like to live, uh, but also figure out a way to, to have a coordinated effort to um, better allocate the resources to areas where they are needed, encouraging finding supports for immigrants in certain areas where it won't put so much pressure on a system that, that can't handle it. You either have to increase that support network immediately, meaning building new houses, building new health infrastructure, building new schools, or you need to find incentive programs to, to encourage people to, to be in areas where those resources aren't as strained as they currently are. Which is an interesting one too. Like you said, they're not they're not going to start telling people this is where you must live in Canada, but you would think there could be uh, some kind of marketing plan or some some reaching out to, to, to kind of hi- uh, perhaps highlight those places. Yeah. But on the other side, we also understand why people might choose to go where there's already an established community, where there might be people maybe who, who are immigrants from the same country and you've got a, a sense yeah. of community there. I mean, that, that you can hardly fault someone for wanting to do that. No, a catch-22, right? They're often catching up to their family, to their loved ones, to their community members from where they have come from, and they are trying to seek out new opportunities in places where it is incredibly challenging. You're moving to a country where in some cases you don't speak the language, where you're being asked to retrain in certain skills, you're being asked for your children to learn new languages and go into a school system where they may be unfamiliar. There are a lot of added challenges. Now throw on top of that moving to a community where you know no one and no one else looks like you or no one else speaks your language, then it adds even greater challenges to that. So we can only get to these solutions if all of uh, the stakeholders sit down and have these conversations. And I think there's validity. Ravi Callon, the housing minister, says, Ottawa, you have to better support housing starts. Tie the money that we get for housing starts to immigration percentage. Good. The calls that we're hearing from Chris Friesen, same thing. BC, make a plan for 10 years. Good. And once we have those things in place, we need to do this quickly because we know that these goals are growing exponentially. Yeah, we broke a record this year. We're going to break a record next year, the hope is from Ottawa, the year after that and the year after that with a goal of more than 500,000 new permanent residents by 2025. And again, it doesn't factor in temporary foreign workers, temporary foreign visitors. That also includes not just workers, it includes hundreds of thousands of foreign students who are in this country and then also doesn't include the migration across Canada that we see a lot of pressure here in BC as well as people continue to move here from Alberta and elsewhere. All right. So while I look forward to hearing more about this and to your reports on this, Richard, thank you so much as always. My pleasure as always. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for being with us on this Tuesday afternoon. Well, a chronic offender, somebody with more than 115 previous convictions, has been arrested. And joining us to talk a bit more about how that happened is Sergeant Steve Addison, Media Relations Officer with the Vancouver Police Department. Sergeant, thanks so much for being with us. Hey, Joe, no problem. Uh, Tell us a little bit about this individual. Ah, this individual is somebody that we know well, um, w- well over 100 uh, criminal convictions dating back to uh, the early 1990s. Um, known so well, in fact, that uh, when our officers responded to this report, it was a theft 
of uh, a very expensive piece of art from an art gallery. We were able to review CCTV footage and immediately recognize him. That allowed our officers to mobilize, uh, go to his home and wait for him to come home where we were able to arrest him very quickly within the hour. Um, while he was still um, in possession of the um, the art that had been stolen. So successful outcome for us, uh, made possible by uh, uh, um, the gallery owner who quickly called 911, provided very useful information that allowed us to uh, mobilize our officers and solve a crime. So this was Saturday that this happened, like you mentioned. So an art gallery owner, uh, was it just the case of like we've seen, unfortunately, so many times before, somebody walked in off the street and just took a piece of art? Yep, see it all the time. Crimes of opportunity. Uh, it was the second day in a row that this particular business had been hit by uh, what we believe to be the same the same criminal. And uh, essentially, what happened was the uh, the gallery owner on Saturday uh, observed a man come in, steal uh, an expensive piece of art, recognized him as being the same person that had been in the day before, and committed a theft. He tried to follow him out of the store. Uh, he called 911 immediately, which is what we always tell people to do. He obviously didn't want to leave the store uh, unattended, so didn't go too far, but he provided very useful information that allowed our officers to flood the area. Um, the suspect was gone um, by, by the time uh, we got there. Um, he'd left the area, but as I said, we were able to review security video from the store, recognized him because he's somebody we know well. Uh, we sent officers to his, his uh, home, which is uh, uh, an apartment building in East Vancouver, uh, within the hour, our officers waited. They spotted him walking up to the apartment, still with the artwork in hand, uh, and they made an arrest. Um, continued the investigation after making that arrest and discovered that uh, there was likely uh, more stolen property at his residence. So after executing a search warrant, we recovered uh, the additional artwork that we believe had been stolen from the gallery the previous day. And as a result of that, the suspect's been charged with two counts of uh, theft over $5,000. That's um, it's a very positive outcome uh, uh, to um, an unfortunate set of circumstances. Oh, uh, in, indeed. Uh, was somebody so well-known to police, I mean, did you even have to look up his address or did officers just know where to go? Um, we did a, so, uh, um, we did the basic investigation, confirmed his address. He's somebody we know well. We know the areas that he frequents. It did, obviously didn't take long. This wasn't the crime of the century. This isn't the kind of crime that they make movies about. Um, it was a crime of opportunity. And uh, once we knew who he was, we were able to, to quickly track him down and find him. Uh, again, it's the result of the, the business owner calling 911 and giving us that information right away that allowed us to do that. Had he not done that, had he not given us the, that information so quickly that allowed us to get officers to the area, um, this artwork could be long gone by now. It was only because of his quick thinking that, uh, that we were able to do this. When you look at a case like this, and I know we've talked about this in the past, the fact that uh, when you say you can't arrest your way out of the issues, the many issues that are facing the city right now, but here we have somebody with more than 115 previous convictions. Why is this guy still out stealing things? Yeah, and we're not in a position to editorialize or criticize the justice system. We're just here to do our job. And our job is to investigate crimes and hold people accountable. So in this case, we do have somebody who is a repeat offender um, and somebody we know well. Um, again, we were able to arrest him uh, and uh, take him back to jail. What happens beyond that is... is uh, it, once a, a, we deliver a person to jail, uh, whether a person gets bail or gets held in custody is not our decision. But what we will do is we will continue to do our job. We'll continue draw, to draw attention to public safety issues, crime trends, and to show people what we're doing uh, in order to uh, combat uh, some of the public safety issues and the crime trends that are happening in the city. And in this case, as in a number of other cases, 
uh, we've been able to arrest somebody um, and take them back to jail uh, for uh, for a fairly serious offense. Right. And and I don't think anyone's suggesting yeah, that, that you're not doing your job or, or that officers aren't doing their job. But it's got to be frustrating when you see somebody like this who is so well known to police. Even now, he's been charged with two counts of theft, but he's probably going to be back out there, probably back out there doing it again. Well, I mean, we hear from the public uh, that there is a significant level of frustration when we hear about the so-called revolving door of justice. Uh, people tell us all the time. We we see it on the news. We see it in the social media. We see it when we're uh, we're 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 out in the community working. People are people are telling us that they're frustrated by stories like this. Um, we're a representation of uh, the community's values, and of course, we we get frustrated with these stories too. Uh, that's why it's important for us to solve these crimes, and that's why we take them very seriously. So um, we're happy uh, that we were able to solve this one. We're able. We're happy we're able to uh, arrest the person that we believe responsible is responsible. What happens next is going to be up to the justice system. Right, and and you mentioned so there was another piece of art that police were able to uncover. Were there any other stolen goods, or was there anything else that police uncovered when making this arrest? Well, the investigation is ongoing, and, and like I always say, um, the investigation doesn't end when we make an arrest. In, in many cases, it just starts. So we'll be looking further into this individual um, and any uh, additional crimes that may have occurred. We'll be looking at further evidence that may be able to link this individual to, to other offenses, and that's, uh, there's still quite a bit of work to do. Even though we've made an arrest and there have been charges laid, uh, we've still got some, some work to do on this. Sure, sure. Uh, do you know what his response was like? Somebody like this, who obviously has had so many interactions with police, who clearly, even with the more than 115 previous convictions, uh, allegedly had no problem going mm-hmm. into an art gallery and walking out with a piece of $40,000 art. Do you know what his response was or, or what the response is when police show up at his door? Uh, short answer is, is no. Um, it, this is somebody that's uh, um, very familiar with the uh, the justice system. Somebody who we've arrested uh, multiple times. Um, as I say, not the not the crime, uh, not not the type of crime that movies are are made of. Um, but we're very fortunate that we were able to um, bring him into custody and recover. A lot of a very two very expensive pieces of artwork in um, in, in a fairly short period of time. All right. Sergeant Steve Addison, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for talking about this today. No problem, Jill. Take care. Well, we were talking earlier in the show with Richard Zussman. He is working on a story today about immigration and about immigration numbers. The federal government put out some new numbers earlier today as well, saying that Canada welcomed an historic number of newcomers in 2022, reaching the target of more than 431,000 new permanent residents. And we know that there are big goals when it comes to the number of immigrants moving forward of 2023 and beyond. So we wanted to talk a little bit more about this. Joining us now is Chris Friesen, Chief Operating Officer of Immigrant Services Society of BC. Chris, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. When we look at these goals and we look at to headlines like that, saying that Canada has welcomed an historic number of newcomers, are we doing enough as far as when people are moving to Canada to support them? Well, I think, you know, uh, there's a couple of story angles on this. One is, of course, this is an amazing, um, you know, number that uh, over 430,000 
permanent residents chose to come to Canada, in most cases, through economic class. Um, you know, given our current uh, situation in the country, with the aging population, accelerated retirements, and a declining birth rate, we need these numbers. So this is a good news story. Um, but along with that, though, are, of course, challenges. Uh, how, how do we find necessary housing? As one key example, um, in all parts of, of Canada and throughout BC, I think that's the challenge that we're facing. We need the higher immigration levels, um, but, uh, but some of our infrastructure um, is lagging behind. And how difficult is it or what are some of the challenges when people move to Canada and maybe aren't anticipating the cost of housing or the stress that's already in place in our healthcare system? Well, I think, you know, this, this is, housing is key here. And, and, and I think what is really lacking is, is a connection between the um, multi-year immigration levels plan along with some sort of national and or provincial territorial housing strategy that specifically targets um, new immigrants and refugees. I'm not suggesting that, that you know, BC residents are also in need of, of more affordable housing, but I think that there needs to be some targeted efforts around building housing stock uh, for, uh, for the foreseeable future in anticipation of these higher immigration levels. And you mentioned there uh, the two different, uh, two very different words as far as um, when it comes to immigration, if we're talking about uh, people that are choosing Canada and choosing to come here and to move to this country, as opposed to perhaps people who are fleeing war or fe- uh, fleeing very, uh, very difficult situations. How does it compare as far as the supports and the very different needs of people that are coming here? Well, you know, I, I, um, we're in the middle of um, supporting two simultaneous humanitarian crises, the, the uh, Afghan Special Initiative um, uh, going into year two now, uh, uh, as well as the ongoing uh, response to the Ukrainian uh, uh, crisis. And, and um, what, what, how that's being translated on the ground with our staff um, is longer stays in short-term transitional housing. Um, uh, you know, the, the search for finding affordable rental accommodation within uh, Metro Vancouver and through our colleagues in other regions of the province, we're all facing the same challenges, how to find affordable rental accommodation. And, um, you know, and so this is why it's not, you know, it's not going to be solved by one, you know, level of government or or. or um, are, are one aspect of civil society, we, we really need an overarching overall plan, a more coordinated plan. And I think this starts with perhaps even looking at a made-in-BC immigration plan, a 10-year forecasting, you know, that looks at not only permanent residents, but also temporary residents. We've seen, you know, higher numbers of temporary residents in 2022 than we have with permanent residents. You add those together, that's a high, that's a significant number of people coming in through various countries around the world. And uh, yes, when they arrive, they're going to need housing. They're going to need to access transit. Their children are going to need to go to school. They may need to access the health care occasionally. So all of this is interconnected. Um, but there are, 
you know, I think there are more and more opportunities as crises arise. I think that one of the aspects that we're seeing, you know, hopeful signs is more and more work done around accreditation and how to uh, assess international qualifications of uh, highly skilled and lower skilled immigrants that are making their way to this province. I think that's key. We need to get them employed as quickly as possible. They want to be employed. They want to pay taxes. Um, but it's not always clear how they navigate the complexity of our system to, to have their qualifications um, uh, assessed. And it's interesting as well that you mentioned that because, again, in the release, the government release that, that paints what appears to be a, a very positive picture of immigration talks about that, saying that this, that there are acute labor market shortages that we are facing as a country and that building a strong economy is immigration is a key part of that. But it kind of seems like there's a disconnect, doesn't it? When, when, like you say, there are these big gaps when it comes to accreditation, when it comes to transferring those skills. Um, absolutely. You know, I mean, almost 100% of Canada's labor market growth is now reliant on immigration. You know, three, three quarters of Canada's population growth is now uh, on the basis of immigration. So these are huge societal transformation changes, um, and but it but it, it is challenging. I mean, on the one hand, we need construction workers, truck drivers, plumbers, electricians, you know, to build housing stock. But them themselves also need housing. So we really have to look at this uh, housing situation, you know, with with some you know out of the box new ideas, um, higher level strategies of how we can come together as a society to, to, to welcome uh, and support uh, the labour market and social integration of, of these future Canadians. Is there a way as well, do you think, to, to be welcoming and to make sure that people do feel welcome and, and, and appreciated and, and all of those other things? But, and, we, and we touched on this earlier, that Vancouver and Metro Vancouver is extremely expensive. Certainly Toronto is very expensive as well. And on the one hand, while it makes perfect sense that people would be drawn to city centres or drawn to areas where maybe there are, are already communities set up, there are less expensive places to go in BC, in parts of Canada. Is there enough kind of putting that out there, at least as an option to people, as perhaps a more affordable option? I think that there is a number of initiatives that have been underway for a few years now. Um, uh, You know, one that comes to mind, the Atlantic Immigration uh, Pilot Program, that 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 involved both employers and 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 immigrant serving agencies and the two levels of government um, coming together to target um, uh, uh, settlement uh, arrival to smaller, more rural regions of, of of Atlantic Canada. There's northern pilots underway now as well. I think these can help inform. Um, how best to um, tweak and adjust our, our marketing, our outreach, our social media uh, to immigrants um, that are choosing to come to this country to consider other parts other than just the Metro Vancouver, uh, you know, uh, region. Um, I think that that's, you know, that's a work in progress, but I think it really has to begin, though, by understanding and getting a level of clarity on uh, 
uh, the forecasting, the projections of how immigrants, uh, both permanent residents and temporary residents, are going to contribute to various regions of the province and, and what is needed to ensure that they are adequately supported to be able to stand on their own two feet, um, you know, and, and contribute as, as future citizens. I think that's key. And when you talk about that and, and that kind of a made in BC solution or, or a 10 year plan, are we anywhere near having that? Well, it's it's being talked about, but but we haven't seen it come to fruition yet. Um, but you know, it, it's talked about occasionally in policy discussions and so forth. Um, you know, what we're suggesting is that you know this would be the time, as uh, you know, BC last year. I mean, huge uh, arrival numbers in this province. Um, we we need that coordinated plan and insights so that municipal governments have a better sense of what's going to happen within their city, so that um, school boards have more insight in the projection of school-aged children that will be coming likely to their region. You know, health authorities can better understand population growth. I think this is key, is, is, and, and developers having a sense of where, where housing is going to be needed. I think it's all about, um, you know, working collaboratively, collectively, and a more systemic way to address these higher um, immigration levels for the foreseeable future. As I said, you know, we need immigrants here. Uh, They are our future tax base. We're counting on immigrants to help sustain the social programs that we become accustomed to whether that's old age security, CPP, you know, and child tax benefit, et cetera. Um, we, need, uh, we need to ensure um, that these higher levels of, of immigration are able to successfully integrate, contribute, give back, and, and help us uh, as we build this country together. And just one final question then, when we talk about these numbers and the target numbers and this historic number of immigrants, are, are we, is that the correct number, do you think, or, or should it be higher or lower? Well, I think, you know, it, it, for me, it's, it, it's not so much about the number, it's about the, 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 the programs, the services, the infrastructure, ensuring that that is accessible that we have sufficient infrastructure to pr- adequately welcome and integrate. So to me, it's about, you know, a target is good. It, it, it provides a focal point. Um, but as I said earlier, even this announcement by Minister Fraser earlier today about the f- over 430,000 only tells half the picture because what's missing is the temporary residents. How many international students came in last year? How many temporary foreign workers? You know, um, it, it's uh, important that we understand the entire picture in order to understand what what uh, capacity uh, services, housing uh, is going to be needed as these numbers continue to increase for the foreseeable future. All right. Chris Friesen, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time today. My pleasure. Bye for now.